Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland, and today we're going to do another classic look at Tech Stuff. We're going to pull up an episode from the archives, actually a pair of them. Today we're looking at the story of Nintendo Part 1. I bet you can guess what next week's episode is going to be. It's going to be Part 2. But the reason why I'm doing this is that in two weeks, we're going to have Part 3, an update, brand new update to this story. Now, these first two episodes were recorded back in 2011, so it has my original co-host Chris Paulette in there as well, and we really had fun exploring how Nintendo transformed itself from its origins into a video game giant, and, uh, you know, that's not how it was all way back in the early, early days of Nintendo. So let's take a listen to this classic episode and find out how things got started. All right, so today we are going to talk about a uh, a company that is fairly well known in tech circles. Mm -hmm. Nintendo. But did not start out as a tech company as many uh, a tech company has been, especially yeah. the ones that have lasted as long as Nintendo. Yeah, some of the other, uh, you know, video game companies also have their origin in something other than video games. Like, I'm, uh, I'm thinking of Coleco. Yeah, the Connecticut Leather Company. Yeah, Connecticut Leather Company. That, yeah, and, we've already made the joke about games coming out of the Connecticut Leather Company. And, and Tandy, also. Yeah. So uh, Nintendo is also one of those companies that uh, now they have their history in games, but it wasn't video games because in 1889, when the company was founded, video games didn't exist yet because television resolution was terrible (laughs) as in non-existent. Yeah, you had to actually uh, stop, draw the next picture. Right. And then, you know, oh, and this is what happened. Hold on. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like, time for this. It's kind of like Dragon's Lair, but at super slow speeds. All right, so uh, yeah, that's but, a uh, one megahertz compression. <laughs> yeah. So, so in order for you guys to understand, we we really actually have to go back much further than even the uh, the founding of the company. Um, Chris. Um, yes. <sighs> no, I'm not getting you, in that. Thing. No, you got to, man. All right, the Wayback Machine is ready to go. Go on in there. I'm right behind you, Chris. Yeah, you know, I, I, sometimes I'm afraid he's going to shove me in here and then shut the door. Yeah, but it's bigger on the inside anyway. All right, so uh, let me just set this to um, 1633 Japan. Oh, there you are, Perry. <laughs> Push the button, Frank. And here we are in 1633 Japan. Uh, if you say a, so. There's a samurai right over there. That's uh, watch out for the yakuza. All right. So in 1633, <laughs> they're coming up again too. Yeah, the Japanese. Uh, well, the, there was a, a, a decision made to close the borders of Japan to the from you know, away from the outside world. Yep, and they shoved off and they pushed themselves out into the middle of the ocean. Yeah. I'm kidding. It used to be, Japan used to be located next to New Jersey. Uh, no, that's not <laughs> true. Not true at all. I'm no, just so imagining it, thousands of people rowing <laughs> yeah. with paddles. No, actually, it was just one Godzilla pushing really hard. Um, no, as it turns out, Japan had made this decision, the Japanese government made yep. the decision to, to essentially ostracize, uh, themselves from everybody else to, to, it was very xenophobic. 
era in Japan, where the the Japanese culture, which was very much centered on uh, concepts that were uh, uh, based in things like family and honor and tradition, mm-hmm. uh, they they saw the outside world as threats to that, mm-hmm. and so. A lot of contact was cut off from the outside world. Japan became inwardly focused. Mm -hmm. Well, at that time, uh, the government banned the uh, uh, importation of all foreign playing cards. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part of the problem was that there was an issue with gambling in Japan. That'll come up later, too. Yeah. So because of the issue of gambling, uh, the Japanese government decided to to ban the... uh, the, the importation and sale of foreign playing cards. Now, this actually created a market for domestic playing card companies um, that were able to, within certain parameters, produce playing cards. Mm-hmm. Now we've set the scene. All right, uh, for the rest of this, we'll just tell it from the present day. So let's uh, get back in the Wayback Machine. Come on. Okay. All right. Let's see, let me set this to present day, which was at 2011. Oh. Late October. All right, and push the button, Frank. And back into our cozy studio. All right, so mm, cozy. Seventeenth century Japan cuts off this th- these ties to the outside world, mm-hmm. and then in. 1859, a, uh, a a fellow by the name of Fusajiro Yamauchi was born. And uh, I would like to take this opportunity to apologize to any Japanese listeners for the way I will butcher names throughout the entirety of this podcast, because mm-hmm. it's going to happen. My, I am not Japanese. I have never taken Japanese. Um, so if you will just extend me a, a, a little slack, uh, I will owe you an arigato. <laughs> um, so in 1859, he's born. Mm-hmm. Yamauchi is born, and uh, and and he would found the company in 1889. He called it Nintendo Kopai, mm-hmm. and the company was making special playing cards uh, out of out of bark, actually, uh, for a game called Hanafuda. Mm-hmm. Now, do you know what Nintendo means? What does Nintendo mean? It's 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 translated frequently as "Leave luck to heaven," mm. which. Uh, well, sort of goes along with, you know, playing cards. Yeah. Because, you know, and, and you're talking about games, mm-hmm. luck would be involved. Sure. And uh, hamafuda means flower cards. And these were cards that instead of having numbers on them, which is what the gamblers were using, uh, had flowers on them, pictures of flowers, hand-painted, actually, when they first came out. Mm-hmm. And they became really, really popular. And, uh, and the company saw a lot of early success. Uh, and in 18, uh, 1889, the same year that Nintendo was founded, uh, the Japanese government began to relax some of the restrictions that they had placed around the whole industry of playing cards in the first place. So it was perfectly positioned. Mm-hmm. And so Nintendo Kapai began to uh, to expand very quickly because everyone thought that the artwork on the cards was really beautiful and so they were desirable to have mm-hmm. and then the restrictions at the same time were started to to slack a bit uh the company saw a lot of early success mm-hmm. and that was really what it focused on was producing playing cards now in 1929 uh, Fusajiro retired and he handed over the control of his company to his son-in-law uh, uh Sakiro Kaneda and uh 
who then took the family name, the Yamauchi family name. Mm-hmm. And in fact, all Nintendo CEOs, with the exception of the current one, were related to uh, Fusajiro mm-hmm. in some way, either by actual blood or by marriage, um, really by marriage when you get down to it. But in 1933, uh, that's when the company changed its name to Yamauchi Nintendo and Company. So mm-hmm. they dropped the mm-hmm. Kapai at that point. And they created a, uh, a a second company, a card game distributor company called uh, Marofuku Company Limited. And both of those companies at that time saw great success. Mm-hmm. So, again, Nintendo is already doing really, really well. Uh, and, of course, video games are not anywhere near the picture at this point. <laughs> the picture. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1949, uh, Sekiryo uh, suffered a stroke. Mm-hmm. And he was no longer able to uh, control the company. And so he handed over the company to his grandson, mm-hmm. Hiroshi. Now, this caused a lot of concern within Nintendo. Yeah. Because Hiroshi was very young. He was 21 at the time. Oh, yeah. When he was given the company. And he was a law school student. He wasn't a business student. Yeah. So he was studying to become a lawyer. He dropped out of college, out of law school in order to uh to take over this company and some of the the employees of Nintendo really objected to him becoming the new head of the company yeah so much so that there was actually a factory strike mhm mhm yeah as a matter of fact he uh he went down in history for uh firing a lot of those employees that, yes. that was not a popular move within the company yeah hiroshi was uh he kind of showed everyone who was boss he he took he introduced a new corporate culture. Mm-hmm. He had the uh, the Darth Vader uh, method <laughs> of of management, in that if you um, if you thought that he was uh, his decisions were not good ones, then he didn't want you working for him anymore. Yep, yep. I actually, uh, I part of my research was done uh, from a book called "All Your Base or Belong to Us." Yep. Um, by Harold Goldberg. Uh, he has a chapter on uh, it's a it's a history of video games, but he has a chapter on Nintendo, which is which is pretty fascinating. And they said that that he was a really serious guy. Yeah, I mean they you know watching him crack a smile, you'd have to wait because yeah. he didn't do it very frequently. He was a very very no nonsense sort of fellow, uh, yeah, but very of, businesslike. Kind of, exactly, kind of like the cliche idea we have of the Japanese businessman. You know, very formal. And very serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also instituted a policy that would become something that sort of resonates throughout Nintendo for years to come, which was that he, he demanded that all products that Nintendo was going to produce be cleared through him personally before the company would move on it. So you think about that. I mean, this is a CEO of a company. Now, most companies, a CEO is, is directing the company. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's he's, Got a hands-on uh, involvement with the company, but you don't necessarily have every single product cleared through your CEO. At not least usually. not for every company. There are a few companies that did. You know, Apple being another famous I was company. Say. Yeah. So Apple's another famous company where the, where the CEO had a real hands-on approach. Well, Hiroshi felt the same way, and and this is a a strategy that would pay off for Nintendo further down the line. Not necessarily that the CEO had to clear everything before it went through, but Nintendo decided having this real focus on product quality uh, that would become very important when Nintendo would enter the video game market. Mm-hmm. Now, 
Uh, the, I'm sorry. The company diversified quite a bit. Yeah. Well, first of all, in 1953, they started to produce plastic playing cards, which was mm-hmm. that was the first uh, big move as far as technologically speaking goes, because up to that point they were using paper or wood cards. Mm-hmm. So in this case, they're they're moving to plastic cards, and uh, they even started to practice with some other stuff. In 1959, they had they signed a big licensing agreement with another huge company. Do you know which company I'm talking about? Was it the one with the mouse, the big ears? Yes, it was Disney. So in uh, 1959, they the uh, uh, Nintendo and Disney form a partnership through licenses that allowed uh, Nintendo to print playing cards with Disney characters on it, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you know this. If you're not, if you've never been to Japan and you don't know a lot about Japanese culture, you may not be aware of this. But Disney was enormous in Japan. Oh yeah, still is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, j- it was one of those things that really resonated with the Japanese people, and so these cards were insanely popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they did try to diversify uh, because the playing card business. Uh, even at that point, Nintendo could see that that the 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 business was starting to slow down, mm-hmm. and so they started looking into other ways of making money. Now, you did you have a partic- a couple that you wanted to particularly mention? Um, <clears throat> there's one I, I'm sort of debating mentioning. Is it they, the hotel? Yes, it was the hotel. It's a very spe- special <clears throat> kind of hotel. Yes, it wasn't just a regular hotel. No, no, it was a hotel that didn't have windows. <laughs> Well, of course not. It's an intent. Oh, wait, never mind. All right. No. So th- what we're dancing around mm-hmm. here is that and is, this is going to be something that's shocking to people who think of Nintendo as this family friendly sort of video game company. Um, it was a hotel that didn't have windows. It was meant for uh, people who wanted a discreet place to whisk away to and have a romantic interlude. Yes. See, that's that was very that was PC a nice of way. Of, that was very nice way of putting it. And they had a taxi company. Yeah. Yeah. Which they, it did have windows because it turned out that if you had a taxi with no windows, it was very dangerous to drive on the road. Yes. So anyway, yeah, so they, they, Nintendo, by the way, was not the only company that tried this whole hotel, this love nest hotel thing. Um, there were many other companies that tried it as well. Mm-hmm. So Nintendo tried, uh, that and the taxi service as well as producing foods, mm-hmm. uh, essentially foods that you would buy at a supermarket. Uh, but none of these lines of business really panned out. No. And these were all failures for Nintendo, and Hiroshi had sort of a black eye for kind of pushing the company into these areas. But as it turns out, um, it was important for, for the company to try and diversify. Because in 1964, the, the game card industry in Japan crashed. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, we've talked about the 1983 video game crash, and we'll talk about it again in a, in a little bit. But we've talked about that in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, same sort of thing happened in Japan with playing cards. And oddly enough, it was for the same reasons, the, mm-hmm. or largely the same reasons. And one of the big reasons was saturation. Yeah. You know, you got to a point where these cards were really, really popular for a really long time. So everyone owned them. But if everyone owns them, why would you go out and buy another one? Yeah. You've already got them. You don't need any more. So... Because of that, the the whole industry started to suffer because you know no one needed to buy more cards, uh, and this was right around the same time uh, that Tokyo was hosting the Olympics. So it was weird because you had this huge influx of money coming into the country, but mm-hmm. you also had this industry fail this this historically relevant industry failing. Yes, mm-hmm. at the same time. 
But Nintendo manages to uh, skirt the shoals of bankruptcy, uh, <laughs> to quote Monty Python. Um, well, they got into toys for a while, too. Yeah, well... In 1965, they hired a guy named uh, Gunpei y- Yokoi. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gunpei was uh, a fellow who was very inventive. Um, he worked in one of the, the playing card factories. Mm-hmm. And there, he happened to be working there on a day when Hiroshi came through. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hiroshi sees Gunpei playing around with something that he had invented that uh, was essentially... Do you remember those... In, in cartoons, it happens all the time. There's a character that picks up a a, a, a boxing glove that's on like an accordion hand, uh, uh, accordion sort of lattice thing. And if you pull a trigger, it extends out and punches someone who's 20 feet away. Oh yeah. So I have one of those at home. That's a, well. That's essentially what Gunpei had invented. He had invented this thing that was a, a claw mm-hmm. on the end of one of those. So you would uh, you know you pull these two levers together and it would extend out this accordion arm. And at the end of the accordion arm was a claw. And the very last action is that claw would close. Mm-hmm. So it would allow you to pick stuff up that was slightly inconvenient for you to get up and pick up yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Hiroshi came to the conclusion that perhaps what Nintendo could do is diversify and get into the toy business. Yes. And that, that invention became the Ultra Hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, very typical, uh, in, in my head, Japanese name for something like that. I'm yeah. probably thinking of Ultraman at that point. Right. So, um, but yeah, it, it actually came with uh, with some plastic balls that you mm-hmm. could pick up. Um, you know, uh, well, anything like that, you got to include the uh, the thing to pick up. So they they did that for a little while. Yep. Uh, but that wasn't the only thing. They didn't they didn't really, uh, from my research, get into toys wholesale. Like where you know, oh, this is what we're going to do in the future. It was more like a um, a trial thing that they they sort of experimented with for a little bit. Yeah, and there were other. I mean, there there were several examples of toys that they got into. Um, mm-hmm. Some of which gave a hint at what they would be doing in the future. Uh, like they had a love tester. Ah, uh, yes, the old uh, the old love testers, which you know just sort of measure the um, the, the you your know, compatibility with another person. Yeah, you, yeah. You hold a little handle, and it tells you how red uh, hot. Yeah, exactly. Or or cold fish. Um, I remember cold fish. Yeah, used to have oh. those at Stuckies. Yeah, Stuckies. Oh man, that's taking me back to a comedy album. Anyway, but yeah, the the um, yeah, I was just looking at looking it up, and it's a little slower to do this in uh, in a non electronic format. But uh, Goldberg's yeah, he's got, got a, he's got the Dead Tree I, edition. I actually had the Dead Tree edition. Well, I checked it out from the library. Um, uh, apparently, they sold about one point two million Ultra Hands. So. And the uh, the love tester came out in in 1969, but um, both of them were were going with uh, with the company's philosophy of because uh, Yokoi apparently said, and this is a quote: "The Nintendo way of adapting technology is not to look for the state of the art, but to utilize um, mature technology that can be mass produced cheaply." Yeah, I feel like this is going to come up again. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, that, that's a very, it was a very responsible way of doing things because it, it enabled them to, uh, put something together using existing technology, no R&D, uh, but at the same time, it sold very well. Right. So that's, that's a good way to make money. Yeah. In fact, the toys really turned Nintendo around. Uh, without, without that, that serendipitous, uh, discovery where Hiroshi saw, uh, Yokoi's work, really the company may not have survived. 
because right. that the the playing card industry was in such such a such dire straits, and uh, the other attempts of Nintendo to diversify had failed pretty dramatically. That without that, it may not have been able to stay afloat long enough to get into the video game era. But uh, moving ahead a couple of years, in 1973, Nintendo developed a technology called the laser clay shooting system. Which was a laser a, clay shooting system. Yeah, it was a, it was a light gun game. Oh, okay. Because I was trying to figure out what laser clay was. Well, you know, it's yeah, it was a skeet shooting system, essentially ah. a skeet shooting game. Like if you've ever been to one of those giant arcades that has like the the rifle that's really a light gun, and then right. you're, you're firing at the image of a of a clay pigeon. Oh, you mean like duck hunt? Yeah, yeah, like duck hunt eventually would become. Uh, but in this case, it was stuff that was projected on the wall. It wasn't necessarily, it wasn't like a, a screen screen. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, installed these in old bowling alleys that had no, gone out of business. So this was kind of creating an entertainment destination. It wasn't, it was still a little too early for the arcade era. We're talking 1973 here, and the arcade era really started to take off in the late 70s. Yeah, and although it early was 80s. it was heading into that period though, the 1975-76 yeah. period. Yeah, that's when you started seeing them pop up. And of course in Japan, uh, arcades are still incredibly popular. In in the United States, they are a rare breed. Uh so in 1974, Nintendo formed a partnership and uh, arranged to become the distributor in Japan of the Magnavox Odyssey. Ah uh, yes, I remember it. Well, unfortunately. Yeah. So the Odyssey was a, a home video game console, very limited. We talked about it on our uh, home video games podcast, the yes. crash of the video game. Yeah. So this is one of the, the first, actually it was the first video game, home video game console that really reached wide distribution. Mm-hmm. And so Nintendo became the, the Japanese distributor for this. Now, Nintendo did not develop the Odyssey, but uh, they the company saw the, the, the potential for that in uh, Japan, and actually it did very well. And then in uh, moving up over the next few years, Nintendo started to market its own game consoles. The Game & Watch. Oh, that was one of them. Uh, yeah, the Game & Watch. That was a portable was, system. That was the first portable system. That was back in, a, that, that officially launched in 1980, but just before that, in the 70s, Nintendo had some game consoles that were similar to the Odyssey mm-hmm. in that they were not, it wasn't the kind of game console where you would put a cartridge in and play a game. It was, had, had games hardwired onto the console. Right, right. So you couldn't switch between games or, or you could, you know, if there were like multiple games on that console, you could, but you couldn't put a new game into it. Yes. And, and, and that, uh, really endeared Nintendo to Magnavox. Yeah. And yeah. by endeared, I mean, Completely ticked off and inspired lawsuits. Yeah, because again, uh, Nintendo had become the distributor of this device and then starts to come out with its own competing products and Magnavox says, hey. <laughs> but Nintendo didn't stop Nintendo. They, they had Although games. they lost the lawsuit yeah. and had to pay licensing. But they, they put out their own version of games like Pong. Uh, and this is also. Pong? Yeah, Pong. In 1977, that's also when uh, Nintendo hired a, a certain young artist who ah, would become yes. instrumental in the company's success, uh, Shigeru Miyamoto. Yes. Miyamoto-san. Yes. A famous name in video games. If you do not know who Miyamoto-san is, then you are not a, uh, not a Nintendo fan. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's safe to say that if, if there is a polar opposite to the company's CEO... Yeah. Miyamoto-san would have been that guy. Yeah, Miyamoto is like a rock star. And he really is treated like a rock star. 
Well, he wasn't at first. No. See, the thing when is... When he was first hired, he was just an artist, a no-name artist. Yep. And as a matter of fact, he uh, he got the job uh, because of his parents' connections. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, this, again, is, is according to uh, Goldberg's book. But apparently, um, he he had his he, uh, he he wanted to be a, a manga artist, mm-hmm. um, and his parents uh, happened to know. Well, you know, when your parents know the CEO of a company, yeah, um, you know they 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 may very well try to get you a job, which is what happened in in this case. And, uh, and um, it wasn't it wasn't like it was a high level job. No, he was, no, he was a basic artist for this company. Yeah, um, basically. Uh, during the interview process, Imachi was asking him questions like, why should I hire you? Um, and, and, and told him, you know, if I hire you, it won't be because I know your parents. It'll be because you're good enough to work here. Right. Uh, here again, he's a no, no nonsense kind of guy. Yeah. He's a real business person. Yeah. Um, but he said, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, and hired him after about a month of waiting and, uh, came on as a, a, just as a, uh, um, Card artist. He actually yep. asked him if you, he had a, a, an idea for a revolutionary card game. Mm-hmm. We're looking for something that's going to revolutionize the card game industry. What do you got? You got the next Pokemon? Right. Well, not yet. Yeah. But so, at the time, he was really looking for something big. He said, well, okay, fine. You can work as an artist. Right. And that's what he did for a couple years. And, and Miyamoto is the guy who would eventually launch some of Nintendo's most popular series, including the Mario series. Uh, and the Legend of Zelda, Star Fox, lots of those. Not all of them, but. Do a barrel roll. <laughs> do a barrel roll. Uh, there, yeah, a lot of the, the games that became the big, big sellers and still the big names. I mean, you know, Nintendo and Mario, that's, that's, uh, Mario is like the Nintendo mascot. Mm-hmm. So Miyamoto is the, the man, uh, who, responsible for the creation of that character. Yeah. And in fact, like I said, now it, when he appears at, um, at conferences and stuff, he's treated like, like a rock star. Like there's standing ovations when he comes up on stage, which is a uh, pretty phenomenal. So, so the question is, how does a guy from the mailroom, not literally, how does a guy from the mailroom end up being the rock star of the company? Please explain. <laughs> well, You've no. got the book. Uh, well, yeah, that's because um, they had started trying to get into the arcade game business. Yeah. Uh, they're one of their earliest, in fact, their very first arcade game was the sexily titled Computer Othello, which never got outside of Japan. Um, yeah, it was produced in 1978. But you know, this I is, love those games. I'm yeah, just yeah. saying that's yeah, not, not, not very exciting. Not terribly exciting. Uh, and like... Chris was saying the Game & Watch portable games came yeah. out in 1980. And those were pretty popular. Yeah, now th- those were games that, like the video game consoles we were talking about, those played a specific game. It's not like a game system where you could play multiple games. But uh, oh, some, of the, some of the Game & Watch actually looked like the later Nintendo DS system. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because if you look at some of those old Game & Watch games, you can see where the design elements that would later come into... The Nintendo DS would come into play, and uh, Yokoi, uh, Gunpei Yokoi, was the guy who was responsible for yeah. those that line of games. So he his influence lasted far beyond just the Game and Watch series, and uh, we'll talk more about him in a in a later podcast. This is actually going to be a two parter, by the way, because we're coming up on uh, twenty seven minutes, and we still haven't even introduced the first uh, true video game console, but. Don't worry, we're going to cover all of Nintendo. We just we knew from the start it was going to be a two-parter. Uh, so now that they've introduced the computer Othello, they've decided that they want to get into this. The arcade 
atmosphere is really exploding mm-hmm. worldwide. Arcades are just, that's the place to be. So in 1981, Nintendo develops a video game that would become one of the most popular video games out there. It's right up there with Space Invaders and Pac-Man. Yes, but the problem was in 1980, and then they're linked. Yeah. Ha ha, linked. Um, sorry, that was a Nintendo joke. That's a Zelda joke. Yes. Um, they came out with a game in 1980 that was just the opposite of a hit. It was called Radar Scope. And it did really, really badly. Yeah, so if you don't know about it, that's why. There's a reason. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, um, Yamachi knew that Miyamoto had good ideas. He could yeah. see that, you know, well, I mean, he wouldn't have hired him if he didn't think he was he had promise. Right. Um, he was good at identifying talent and bringing it into the company, um, you could argue. And the thing is, he came up to uh, to Miyamoto and said, what do you, do you like video games? And he said, well, yeah, you know, I've, I've played Breakout and I've played Pong and, uh, you know, I, I like them just fine. He's like, well, do something with this because they had all this this hardware and these cabinets that they had built for radar scope and they wanted to do something else. And he said one of the problems was, and again, this is going to come up again, Miyamoto said, there's no story here. Yeah. The game needs a story. He wanted it to tell a story. See, he was fascinated with stories and still is and with nature and animals and plants and things and he mm-hmm. said this is this is something that will help so um the game that Jonathan was talking about the one that came out in 1981 was built on the the failure of radar scope and they said okay well we've got this hardware let's wh- what can we do with this and most of the people in Nintendo didn't like what Miyamoto-san came up with yeah which was of course the classic arcade game Donkey Kong. Oh, man. And, uh, yeah, how many quarters? I don't I could, know how much of my parents' money I squandered probably, on Donkey Kong. Probably have bought a house. Uh, I probably did buy a house just for <laughs> someone else. Yeah. But Donkey Kong, of course, was that the story is that I, uh, our hero, Jumpman, yes. as he was known at the time. Actually, he was, he was Mr. Video to, <laughs> to Mr. Miyamoto. Yeah. Uh, he would eventually become Mario, mm-hmm. uh, but right now, but at was, the time Donkey Kong came out, he was Jumpman. Yeah, As a matter of fact, it was in the instructions. Yep, uh, he was the hero who was rescuing his girlfriend. Do you know the girlfriend's name? Uh, it wasn't Princess Peach at the time. No, no. I mean, she's known that way now. Pauline. Pauline. He had to rescue Pauline, Pauline Peach. from uh, from Donkey Kong, uh, who was, of course, a giant ape. Gorilla, my dreams. Yeah. Donkey Kong essentially means stubborn. Gorilla. <laughs> yeah, the, so, the name still doesn't make a lot of sense. So, uh, yeah, but of it course did it, tick off a film studio. Yeah, yeah nothing like ticking off King Kong. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, Donkey Kong. Uh, you know, you your job was to try and rescue Pauline from Donkey Kong, and Donkey Kong would try and stop you by throwing barrels at you. And it's a very simple story. Yeah, you climb to the top to rescue the girl. Yeah, and as soon as you get to the top. He, the, the gorilla gets angry, grabs her, and takes off for the next floor. So you're gradually climbing up the uh, construction of a giant building. Yeah, in which the, the construction takes different forms, too, depending on the level. Yes, and considering you take down part of the construction, it's amazing that he could still climb up. But yeah. we won't get into that. Yeah. I'm ruining the magic. Also, also weird that parts of the upper part of the building are more complete than the lower parts. But that's, you know... You're we, messing with it. This isn't this isn't about shoddy construction practices. This is about <laughs> no. It, it was a brilliant construction practice on the the part of Nintendo. Now they said uh, a lot of the Nintendo people 
uh, were thinking that this would never sell. Right. The idea of this is just too weird, especially for people in America. Yeah. Uh, how wrong they were. Oh, Donkey Kong was gosh. an enormous hit. Everywhere. So much so that Nintendo immediately saw the potential once the, the uh, figures started coming in. And they then went on to develop Donkey Kong Jr., which came out in 1982. So just oh, a year later. How much money did I spend on that game? Yeah, so this one you're playing uh, Jr., and your your job is to rescue Donkey Kong. Yep. At this point, Mario has captured Donkey Kong and, and has put him a in name. a cage. Mario is Mario at this point. Yes, he is. And so you have to rescue uh, Donkey Donkey Kong from Mario. And then 1983, they introduced Donkey Kong 3, which had the other uh, protagonist, Stanley the Bugman. Oh, and how much money? Oh, wait, I don't think I ever saw one of those oh, machines. Oh, man, I love Donkey Kong 3. I love Donkey Kong 3 because it was a lot like Galaga. You know, instead of um, shooting, uh, in shooting, instead of shooting spaceships, you shot, uh, bugs that were coming down to steal flowers. And at the same time, you had to manage how low Donkey Kong was getting on these, this pair of vines. As Donkey Kong would, gradually scoot lower and lower on the vines. And your job was to spray Donkey Kong frequently enough to push him up to the next level. And uh, meanwhile, you're also trying to fend off the bugs that are trying to steal your flowers. And I loved this game. I don't think I even saw it on Starcade. And yes, I used to watch that. I was really good at it. Well, right around 1983 is when Nintendo's looking into getting into another related market, which is the home video game System market, not just a not just a console that can play a game or two games or six games, but one that can play a, an uh, indefinite number of games because you can uh, interchange cartridges with this system. Yeah, again, we covered this in another podcast, but this was popular at this point. Atari was going gangbusters. They had competition from um, uh, from Mattel. They had competition from Coleco, and in fact, Coleco's launch of the ColecoVision game console came with. Donkey Kong? Yeah. Um, yeah. They had licensed Donkey Kong to the other game manufacturers. I'm oversimplifying for the sake of hurrying this up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a hit for them. They they were realizing that this was possible and, hey, maybe we could make money on the consoles ourselves. Yep. So that's when Nintendo decided to try and get into the video game market. Uh, it was funny because... Just as Nintendo was positioning itself to enter the video game market, the video game was st- market was starting to crash. But you know what? Originally, I thought that we would get through Nintendo Entertainment System and then pick up from there. But I think this is a good place to stop for our first episode. And what we'll do is, in the history of Nintendo Part 2, we will pick up with the debut of the Famicom, also known as the Nintendo Entertainment System, and walk through Nintendo's history with home video games. Yeah, and we've, we've seen though the seeds have been sown. Yeah. The people who, who made Nintendo into the name that we all know today are with the company. They've realized, um, that a story can propel a video game to, to stardom. And they've, uh, identified their company mascot. Yep. So when we pick up, we will start in, uh, well, I think July 15th, 1983 is just as good a day as any. <laughs> so we'll pick up and we'll explain the significance of that date. date. Yes. So guys, uh, be sure to tune in to part two, which we will be recording almost immediately after we finish this. And we will uh, complete the story of the history of Nintendo and bring it up to present day and kind of explain where the company is right now, which is... Uh, uh, a position that it was in not, you know, uh, like more than a, a little bit more than 50 years ago. Uh, they're, they're back there again in some troubled times. I 
hope you enjoyed that look back at Nintendo. That was obviously just part one. We're going to continue with part two next week and talk more about some of its uh, video game systems leading up to some of the most recent technologies. And then, of course, the following week, I will come out with part three and we will talk about what Nintendo's been up to since 2011. Uh, and I hope you guys will join me for those episodes as well. If you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, please let me know. My email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs>